0: Thank you for joining our conversation on Wow Whispering. I am your host, Diane A. Kern, and it is delightful to be with you. Wow is spontaneous, open, expressive. Whispering is intimate, still, receptive. In our modern age, moments rush in or away like quicksilver. Do we even make the time to savor a wow or reflect on a whisper, to notice and value such gifts? We're ready to do just that with you right now. I am thrilled to be with everyone again here on Wow! Whispering. We have a special treat for you today. Somebody that I am delighted to be talking with. We're going to see where the conversation takes us. So before I tell you any more about her, let me tell you who this is. It's Moira Shepard. And I'd love to say, hi, Maura, how are you today?
1: I'm doing wonderfully, Diane. Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: Well, it is a thrill, and we are going to learn more than we could possibly think one person can have in their lifetime. Moira has really amassed an extraordinary journey in life and an extraordinary set of skills that she shares with the world. So I want to let you know a little bit about her. She has a very unique and very appropriate title. She is a confidence mentor. So confidence mentor, Moira Shepard, is the author of The Resistance Buster and Top Four Tips to Build Your Confidence Now. She helps coaches and healers, leaders and artists and visionaries gain the confidence they need. She's committed to supporting them and sharing their gifts with the world that desperately needs them. Oh, is that so true? Now, as a transformational healer and speaker and writer, Moira sparks breakthroughs for her audience. And she does this in so many media from telesummits to blogs, articles, radio shows, workshops, and oh, yes, podcasts. Here we are. <laughs> her private clients and her listeners and readers report positive changes in their energy, their attitude, and behavior. And that's after just one session with Moira. So after 20 years in the healing arts, Moira cherishes the privilege of supporting thousands of people in creating a richly fulfilling life. And that could include you if you are willing. So we are so thrilled to have you. So Moira, I'm so fascinated with what it was that can you see from this point in time, what got you started on this path?
1: Um, I think I got started on this path uh, probably even before I was born. Uh, my, I feel like my story actually began about a, a year before I, was conce- before I was born. My folks were on their honeymoon driving uh-huh. up to Northern California so but the bride, my mother-to-be, uh, could meet her in-laws. And they got in a car wreck outside uh-huh. of Beelton. And my father walked away with minimal injuries, but my mother suffered severe brain injury. She was in a coma for two and a half months. And it was touch and go every minute whether she would survive. But finally, she did wake up. And when she woke up, my father i'm just guessing here we never really talked about it wanted to get back to normal and start something like normal married life right away and one thing they talked about before they got married was let's have children while we're young because they both had older parents so they went to the doctors the, the neurologists of that time and said we'd like we'd like to get pregnant what do you think and they said well I don't know. There are all kinds of hormones that get released in pregnancy and they might make the brain injury better. Who knows? So in a way, I guess it was kind of a science experiment.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. My goodness.
1: And what, what happened was by the time my mother gave birth to me nine months later after I was conceived, she had completely changed her personality. She, her brain flipped to all rage all the time. And they oh, were so young. Mom was 21. Dad was 24. Mm-hmm. Dad was completely unequipped to deal with this. And um, he, he, he left the scene very early on, emotionally at first, and then actually physically. They divorced when I was seven. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could completely understand that. My only thing was, Dad, couldn't you have taken me with you? I don't want to be here either because I was, I was frightened of my mother. I never mm-hmm. knew what to expect I never knew when she would be home. I never knew when she would leave. If she left, I never knew when she would be back. So there was a lot of uncertainty. The rules seemed to change every day. So you can imagine what they did to, that did to my level of confidence. I had zip, none, zero. I did not trust myself. I did not trust my parents. I didn't trust life because life put me in this situation. And, oh, my gosh, it's like, life, what were you thinking? Come on. Um, but wow. I, I just stayed locked in that drama for so, so many years. And I never really believed in love. I never really believed that anything better would be possible for me. I thought verbal abuse and emotional neglect was the norm so that those beliefs were reflected in my romantic relationships. But I I lucked out. My father married a wonderful woman. Uh, my stepmother, and um, she saw what was going on with my mother. She was doing things that, let's just say, they could have gotten her arrested. Um, they didn't press charges, but we, my my sister and I were taken from my mother, and because my because my wonderful stepmother decided to open their home to us, mm. which was terrific on on the face of it. I mean, I don't think my mother or I would have survived my adolescence if I had stayed there. So she definitely got me, my stepmother got me, definitely got me out of a terrible situation. She saw what it was doing to my sister and me, and she just had this great big compassionate heart and said, we've got got to get those girls out of there. And bless her heart, she did.
0: Now, was your sister younger or older than you? Sounds like younger. She was younger,
1: younger, three years younger. So I basically became a mom at the age of three because my mother had no interest in children. So I toilet trained my sister. I changed her diapers. I made sure we got to school on time. So I was an extremely responsible young lady who, I guess I developed a good act. People who I tell, you know, I've never been very confident, find it hard to believe. But I think that's because I put it on an act as much for myself, as much as for others, because you know, my sister really only had me. To rely upon and I felt like if I felt showed fear or uncertainty that that um, she would be even more unhappy than she was and I well there's I, a
0: precociousness that little children can have that is mm-hmm. a survival mechanism it sounds like you really are in touch with what that process was for you and your sister relied upon it and you in a sense you took on a, a responsibility far beyond your years far beyond your emotional and physical capacity for that level of stress, and um, you know stress in the sense that every day was filled with the unexpected. Every day was not predictable. When you're a little kid, you do not control what is around you. No matter how smart and bright you are, it's clearly you had to be. You had to bring that because that's what was required. So you're reminding me. This word, wow, is a word that oftentimes people look at it from one angle. They say, ooh, I want wows in my life. I want, them, I want them to be wonderful. I want to be surprised. I want to have the unexpected just make my life better. But there's another side to wow. And that is what I kind of refer to as the stunning side. And we hear it sometimes when people say it. They say, oh, wow. Because they've encountered something they don't know what to do about. They feel... Like they can't control it. It may be bigger than them. So it feels like at a young age, Moira, you had that thrust upon you in a way that really takes something for a little kid to survive it.
1: Yes. My mother is of Finnish descent, and after I'd, I'd been through many difficulties and challenges, she said to me one day, pretty much the only compliment I ever remember her giving me, which was, you really have sisu. And sisu is a Finnish word. It's like the Finnish national characteristic. Sisu is a combination of audacity, courage, and persistence. And get that kind of acknowledgement, even though mom didn't really explain what sisu was, I had to look it up, uh, (laughs) to get that kind of of validation and acknowledgement from her really meant the world to me. It really meant a lot to me.
0: How old were you? Do you remember when she first said that to you? Do you have a sense of Oh, she only out. said
1: that to me once. She once. said it to me after I had spent, I think, about five out of seven years in bed with a back injury. At year uh-huh. five of not being able to sit, stand, or walk, my mother very wonderfully came to bring groceries and do my laundry and just just be with me for a couple of hours every week. It was a 50-mile uh, trip each way for her to do that. She didn't have to. I would never have asked her to do it, but this was her choice, her decision. And I felt like I got the nurturing from her on those visits that I always wanted to get from her as a child.
0: So now you were well into your adulthood when this experience occurred with your back injury. Am I right? That's right. So it wasn't when you were a child. It wasn't when you were a young adult. It wasn't when you were an adolescent that your mother said this to you. It was much later on. That's right. Wow. Wow. That's right. You know, it sounds like you created an opening. I'm just getting this from the conversation. You created an opening for her to be able to contribute to your life. And that takes, Sisu, that takes courage to really be willing to be, I don't know if I can use the word forgiving, but certainly the word open to allow her to have, to make a contribution to you at that stage.
1: Yes, it 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 did take as you say a lot of a lot of sisu to do that because i grew up as you can imagine fiercely fiercely independent and going very young to you know i'll do it myself primarily because if i didn't do it it wasn't going to get done but it became a way of life for me and it took getting knocked over in a serious way having a back injury that took me out of my life essentially out of my identity out of out of my way of living and being up until then to mm-hmm. develop the humility to acknowledge that I needed help and to ask for it, or if I couldn't ask for it because it was just too hard. Gosh, I think probably the hardest request I ever made was, Dad, will you please cut my toenails for me? Because I couldn't reach them, and they were starting to look like a wild animals. But I felt I felt so humiliated, but at the same time so grateful that I could say this to my father. I don't know if I could have said it to anybody else to make that request, but I never asked my mom to do anything for me because I expected nothing from her. And so I asked nothing from her. But she just, you know, called me up one day and said, I'm coming up. What do you need for groceries? Give me a, give me a list. And that went on for nearly three years every week. She would uh, get my grocery list, come and do my laundry, bust her heart, and uh, hang out with me. We talked quite a bit. We got to know each other as people. We developed something like an adult relationship for the first time in years. Uh, this was... It still wasn't quite enough to get to the level of, of forgiveness that I really needed to get to, and that's that's where this wow thing that I mentioned came in. This 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 wow story that I wanted to share was something that happened. It was just a couple of days after. The, the big earthquake in uh, Northridge. We'd been together for about four, four and a half years, had temporarily moved in with me because his place got wrecked in the earthquake. He had a brick building in Santa Monica that just went to went kablooey. So he went off to get a video one night and uh, headed out. And three hours later, he still hadn't come back. And I started getting really nervous. I walked to the neighborhood. Suddenly I noticed his motorcycle was gone, but his helmet was still on the living room floor by the door. It turns out he had taken his motorcycle, got in the video three blocks away, lost control of the bike, and got into a single vehicle accident, in the alleyway on the way back. It took me hours and hours to track him down. I called, we were right on the border of Venice and, and uh, Santa Monica, so it took some time to figure out who had jurisdiction. I finally mm-hmm. found out he was in the neurological unit UCLA. Apparently, that's where all head injuries go. So oh I tracked him down. He was in a coma. And I pretty much didn't leave his side for the next two weeks. It was annihilating for me to see him like that. He, had, he was such a strong personality, he was an actor, he was very vivid, he was a real character. And to see his face just as blank as a boiled egg, devoid of personality, devoid of him, was so distressing. I was feeling terribly badly for him, terribly badly for me, for his family. They all flew out from his native Illinois. He had so many friends. He had a great gift for friendship. And so um, pretty much I always had company in the waiting room or in the ICU where he was. But uh, on Valentine's Day, people had other things to do. And there I was sitting with him in the intensive care unit and feeling pretty sorry for myself. Here I am where I am, here he and how is. how
0: long had it been that he was in it the It had been two weeks by point. then.
1: He had been in the oh coma two weeks by then. It was still very much, will he live or die? Nobody knows. Will he ever wake up? Nobody knows. But suddenly I just got this impulse. Something deep inside just moved me toward gratitude. He wasn't dead. He was still breathing, but with help. But at least, at least we were together on Valentine's Day. And suddenly it's like all the knots in my stomach just came loose. And I started feeling more peaceful and more and more grateful every minute. I mean, thank God he's here, this man I love so much. I'm just so glad he's still with us, forever long he is. And I felt so moved by gratitude that I I leaned over to kiss him, just kind of carefully moving the tubes out of the way, not wanting to jostle anything. And I kissed him. And the most extraordinary thing happened, this light suddenly Filled my heart. I mean, it was it was so bright I could almost see it. I wasn't. I, I never considered myself to be very intuitive, but there was this blinding light, and I saw it come up from my heart, in the middle of my chest, going into his heart, in the middle of his chest. And in a moment, the light seemed to pass over his face, and the boiled egg look went away, and he came back. Suddenly, he was back, and he woke up. He woke up. <laughs> it was. Beyond words. It was beyond words. Um, although we, we talked, we talked for about two hours. Suddenly all the doctors and nurses came running in because the monitors started going crazy indicating that he was awake. They asked him all kinds of questions, you know, who's mm-hmm. the president? What year is it? Where are you? He got all mm-hmm. of them wrong, but at least he knew ah. that the president was a president and not an orange. So uh. that was, that was exciting. He lapsed back into a coma for nine more days after those two oh, hours that we great. talked, but the doctor said that he had turned the corner, and he was, in all likelihood, going to wake up again. and eventually the nine days later, he did, and he, he stayed awake. And there was much rejoicing in the land, as you can imagine.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: <sighs> It was huge. He got taken care of at the hospital as long as he needed that. He was moved to a full-time rehabilitation facility. I went to go and visit him every night after work, and I would bring him treats and just lie down on his bed with him and hold him until he fell asleep. He said he couldn't fall asleep unless I was holding him. So that was a really lovely experience. When it was time for him to be discharged, there was some conversation about what happens with him. Where does he go from here? Uh, His parents wanted him to come back home, but he didn't want to do that. He wanted to stay in California. He had two siblings in California, but one was a mother of of several young children. One was a newlywed couple, part of a newlywed couple, and they didn't really have the mental or emotional or physical uh, room for him. I didn't really have room for him either. I had a thousand square foot apartment in Venice, but I wanted him there very, very much. So everybody very kindly agreed to allow me to bring him home. And the first couple of months it was absolutely lovely would never been so close and then his brain flipped to all rage all the time and yeah he was so angry and um he, he refused most visitors he didn't want to see most people so i got to bear the brunt of his anger of his abuse of his bitterness he was just like my mom said anything that came into his head, didn't didn't even think about whether it might hurt somebody's feelings, just, you know, in, in the brain, out of the mouth. And it was like reliving my childhood again. Well, once had been yeah. plenty. So by the end of six months, that by the end of eight months altogether, I've, I've never really been sure what a nervous breakdown was, but I'm pretty sure I had one because I got to the point because where I felt like uh, I'm going to kill somebody. I don't really care whether it's him or me. I'm going to kill somebody. <sighs> it didn't get to that point, thankfully. Um, a couple of months earlier, he had suggested suggested, let's look for a bigger place, 1,000 square feet. That's not enough room for the two of us. So I said, well, I'm at work all day. So why don't you go apartment hiding and, and let me know when you find something that you like? Well, about the time I was getting really, really desperate and not really sure what to do, he came to me. I found the best place. And he showed me a floor plan. And I looked at it and I said, wow, this is 500 square feet, half the size of where we are now. What is this place? It's a converted garage. And I said, oh, a converted garage. Now he loved places like this. He loved converted garages, converted lofts. He loved little cozy, utterly unique type of places to live. So I said to him, you know, it's a little small for two of us, but it looks like it might be just perfect for you. And he looked at me kind of half hopeful, half hurt and said, really, you think? And I said, I think I think you would be very happy there. It's, it's from your enthusiasm. It sounds like it's just your kind of place. I'll look it over. I'll help you out. We'll, I'll help you move your stuff over there, and I'll, I'll check in on you. But I think it would be good for you to be a little more independent. And he, <laughs> his eyes lit up at the word independence. <laughs> I could be alone. I could have the place to myself. Ah. I don't have to be around anybody if I don't want to. Um, so thankfully, what could have been a really ugly situation worked out really well for the both of us even though we did not end up together i know that's the kind of happy ending people like to hear after you've kissed somebody out of a coma but i really i really came to see that just because you do something like that doesn't mean that person belongs to you or that yeah. that you have say over their lives or any any right to impose your free will upon their free will, uh, I don't think we ever would have been happy together. But the huge gift that I got was I got an understanding of what my mother went through and what my father went through on a level that I would never have gotten if I hadn't had that experience. So while we didn't have our own happily ever after, I feel like the healing that I got, the realizations that I came to understanding the fright and frustration my father must have felt trying to deal with someone totally irrational and seeing that, yes, my mother was like this, but it wasn't her fault. It wasn't her doing, at least not on not on the human level, on the soul level, of course. She chose this journey. And on the soul level, I chose the mother that I have. I get that. But she wasn't responsible for the, the tune that was playing in her brain that she just really didn't have the ability to turn off of all that rage. So I got to understand her better. I got to understand mm-hmm. my father better. And it really began what what, is, what has been my ongoing journey in forgiving my mother and understanding that she couldn't help herself was a big part of that. And that however she treated me, it was nothing personal about it. Of course, a child is going to take it personally. But she treated everybody that way. She treated her subsequent husbands that way. She treated you know, the grocery store clerks that way. You should have heard her talk to a waiter. My God, my sister and I would save up our allowance to leave bigger tips because <laughs> we should talk to the staff
0: and when it would go out. Well, you remind me of a couple of things that really seem strong in what you've shared with us. The first thing is that you've shared the story in a very vivid way, three major incidents in your life in a vivid way, such that it's a reminder that we, taking responsibility, that's what comes to mind. You said taking responsibility. And what I'm intrigued with is that sometimes I have found people feeling trapped by those words. And why I say that is sometimes it feels like they feel like I did something wrong somewhere and therefore I'm being punished, but that's not what you're saying at all. What I'm really getting from what you're saying feels like it leaves room to say, whatever comes my way in life, I'm going to take responsibility for it. Because in taking responsibility for it, I give myself the power and the autonomy to make something from it that allows me to have an opening into the future. And that's a very different definition of responsibility. So we can explore that in a moment. But I want you to kind of put that in the conversation. Thank the you. Other thing, thank you. The other thing I wanted to say is that I was mindful of something each person in what you've related and what they were experiencing individually did a really wonderful job of getting us, my listeners and me, to, to hear the emotional journey that each person was having both independently and with each other. So you, of course, are the person who is in every situation, but you, you have been able to present the other people, your mother your boyfriend, your father, your sister in a way that I got a flavor of each of them individually. So it wasn't just it's it's Moira and it's Moira's story, it's Moira and the people she cares about and their experience of life. And I think that is really take something to be able to separate what is happening from you to what is happening with the person, maybe literally right next to you. And maybe you're having a very difficult connection or a difficult relationship, but to identify dynamics differently and honor that. So you are really elevating this conversation to a place where I feel like there's some whispers happening here. And I just want to acknowledge the whispers of responsibility, the whispers of true autonomy, and independence and how they leave plenty of room for caring for and honoring others so thank you for sharing that
1: you are so welcome I, I, I love the way you've you've distilled the essence of, of these stories so beautifully so eloquently I really appreciate having such an understanding ear such a, a an empathetic intuitive audience
0: well, you know, one of the things that is amazing about living, and I know you've encountered this too, is that the more we listen to others, and this, these are, this is not something I knew about you. I knew, I knew other things about you, but not I, I did know you had the back injury, but I didn't know all of this. What is really amazing is when we listen to each other, we take a moment to just hear what's being shared. We learn so much don't we? I mean, it's, it's extraordinary how conversations, and that's why I love to say that wow whispering is about the heart of conversation, not the art of conversation. We know that conversation can be very artful, and I love that about it. But the heart of conversation is a bigger place for us to explore, and we're, we're doing that together here today.
1: Yes, I love that, the heart
0: of conversation. That's so powerful. So I wanted to uh, ask you, as you think about all of these very foundational experiences that have required so much of you at different ages and stages of your life, you now have refined the work that you do in the world, such that you're providing something from people or not from people, for people who may not have had native gifts to be able to wrestle with their experiences and have some confidence and have, tell me again, that beautiful word that you were sharing with me, because I've forgotten it already. Sisu. Sisu. They may not have a, a natural abundance of sisu, but it sounds like you have found ways to tap into a connection with them that may grow that. Is it possible for people to maybe grow it from scratch and kind of develop that and in terms of confidence that they may not start out with very much, but they can actually create it.
1: Absolutely. And and even more deeply than creating, I I see how they can discover it within themselves Mm -hmm. because there's a part of them that has never been wounded. There's a part of them that always knows the right thing to do. There's a part of them that is love and only love. That is brimming with compassion, understanding, insight, generosity, the kind, of forgiveness, the kind of forgiveness that's able to say, you know, there's really nothing to forgive. Um, and we all have that inside of us. So whatever experiences we've had, however battered we might have felt by life or by the people in our lives, that part of us is whole and intact and complete within us. And it's always there. Sometimes it could be hard for people to connect up with it all by themselves. I understand that. There have been times when I've seen how um, my intuition, which I thought was non-existent for you know, decades, <laughs> started getting unlocked by forgiving my mother, forgiving the people in my life. And there were a couple of times where there would be just like a little turn of realization. I could feel it in my brain, and suddenly it would be like a rubber cap being taken off, and suddenly, whoosh, there goes the intuition. Suddenly I'm able to perceive what had previously been imperceptible to me because I was so shut down, so locked into my story, I couldn't see what was right in front of me. Um, this the, the ability to do that comes from the willingness to do that. And Anybody who is willing to let go of their old stories, to be willing to consider the other person's point of view, to think that maybe... It wasn't all about them whatever the wounding event was even if it felt like it at the time because we we believe our emotions even though they lie all the time and we believe our thoughts even though some of them aren't even ours we just you know take them as, as gospel because our brain thought them um, but to, to be able to step back a little bit and to be the observer of your own thoughts the observer of your own emotions the part of you that is observing that is the part of you that's confident is the part of you that knows the truth of who you are and what you're here to do, is the part of you that is able to find love in your heart for yourself, for all, man, all humanity, for every living thing, for all that is. The capacity for love is in there. Um, it's, it's something that we can tap into at any time. It's something that's really only always a, a thought away, just one thought away.
0: Well, you've given us an extraordinary example among several here, but one in particular stands out, and that is that years later, after a very trauma-laden childhood with your, with your mother and, and, the two, and you, you then, in a moment where you were vulnerable and, and unable to be in charge or even take, we'll say, obvious responsibility for your, your daily well-being, you, had, you created a place, you allowed her to come in a woman who had been demonstrably irresponsible, demonstrably filled with rage and showing it to come into your life, into your space, into your home and be with you and grow that part of her, which speaks to just what you were saying, that kind of inner knowing that that sacred untouched space of creative love and compassion and start to have a way to express it by buying you groceries every day, literally showing up with what you needed that she could do, it's a reminder that we don't always know how that is going to take place. And lo and behold, that was the way that was available. And she took that leap, you took that leap, and together, you were both in pretty new territory.
1: Very new territory, but very welcome territory. Somehow, something within me never gave up hope that somehow, some way, we could have a a loving relationship. And it took nearly until the end of her life for me to fully accept her, to fully let go of wishing that maybe today she'll be different. she could still be pretty spiky even on those visits. Um, that was just you know how she was. But the, I think as, I, as I mentioned in in uh, what I wanted to look at today, in terms of the whisper, after doing a lot of forgiveness work, healing the feelings of abandonment, neglect, betrayal, and such like that I had had been carrying around for decades, for uh, nearly all of my life, and choosing to. To let go of them choosing to pray for right perception the course in miracles tells us that there's the only miracle you ever need to pray for is the miracle of right perception because as wayne dyer puts it when you change the way you look at things the things you look at change so I've, I've done a lot of preparatory work and probably there are a lot of people out there who wouldn't have had to do as much, you know, inner work as I've done to get to this point. But I did have that day where I prayed preparatory to a visitor. I was just kind of like, ugh, kind of clenched going to see mom. Ugh, what's it going to be like? Um hope it's not too terrible. And, and and just praying, you know, let this time be different and getting that sense of my deepest heart speaking to me and saying, your mother is not the one who is disappointing you. You disappoint yourself. You break your own heart by expecting her to be other than as
0: she is. Oh, can you say that again? That is such a beautiful phrase. I would love to hear that again. You break your own heart
1: by expecting her to be other than as she is.
0: That is a very remarkable statement.
1: Yes. And I i was never the same after that. I never looked at my mother the same way after that. So I prayed for right perception. Help me to see my mother exactly as she is. Help me to see who she really is, past the personality, past the history between us. Help me to see who she is and how she is today. And what I saw, I loved. And so that visit went wonderfully well. At that point, she was in assisted living and we spent four hours together. And they were the most lovely hours we'd ever spent in our lives together. She was so sweet and warm and loving and affectionate and utterly unlike the the woman I had known all those years, the mother I had known all that time. And yet I felt so connected with her and so Grateful to be with her, and so thankful that finally I could see her with the eyes of love, which paved the way energetically, I think in spirit somehow for her to see me with love
0: yeah you gave her a gift that she could that she could receive and almost have to give it back to you in the sense that love begets love it, it, love is very expansive by nature, quality of of living, and it it seeks to it seeks to give. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, yes it does. The very nature of love is givingness, I think. And it was it was such a joyful time. Our our relationship had been steadily improving, but that that one instance, it just really turned it around. I knew we would never go back. I would never go back to the way that I had been. And I was so thankful because it it became so clear that all of the unforgiveness, all of the grudge, the resentment, the bitterness, the shame, the blame that I had held, didn't hurt mom a bit. She was impermeable.
0: (laughs) It just hurt me. Well, sometimes we have those those barriers up and we have those walls and we're hunkered down behind them and people can't see what turmoil we're dealing with because we're just presenting the front that we're presenting. Like, for example, you said as a little kid, people thought I was very confident. I didn't feel that way inside. <laughs> but that's what others could see. Mm-hmm. So you have opened up so many thoughtful places. I want to take a short break here. We're going to come right back with Moira Shepherd, who is really sharing some extraordinary wisdoms. And I want to invite everyone to stay with us. We'll be right back. Thank you for being with us on Wow Whispering. In every episode, we present a public service announcement that highlights resources committed to uplifting our quality of life. Look for the episode show notes, which have links to learn more. Now today, we are pleased to feature Rosie's Place. On Easter Sunday in 1974, a woman named Kip, with four other volunteers and $250 donated by friends, opened the doors to Rosie's Place in the empty Rosen supermarket on Columbus Avenue in Boston South End. It was the first women-only shelter in the United States. They chose the name Rosie's Place because it held no connotations and sounded like it could be a women's coffee house or a favorite aunt's kitchen. Rosie is no one in particular, yet all the women that are served. A decision was made at the outset to accept no city, state, or federal money to ensure that Rosie's Place maintained its independence from outside demands, policies, and prejudices. On opening day in 1974, there were more volunteers than guests. Small pink notices that read, if you need a meal, come here and we'll help you, were distributed among women in the neighborhood. From that day, the word about Rosie's Place spread and the number of women who came began to grow. Four decades later, Rosie's Place has evolved from providing meals and shelter at that former supermarket to a multi-service agency that works to create answers for 12,000 women a year through wide ranging support, housing, and education services. Here's what they say. They know that coming to Rosie's place for most guests is an admission of defeat. For her, that first day in Rosie's community is probably one of her worst days. She arrives considering herself a collection of problems, of faults, homeless, hungry, jobless, maybe addicted or ill. Right from the start, everyone at Rosie's works to turn that around, to hold in their hearts the image of a strong and dignified woman who can make decisions that help her go where she wants to go. Find out more about Rosie's place. You will be inspired. Thank you. We are back with my wonderful guest, Moira Shepard, and I'm going to spell her name because you may want to find her online. I'm sure you will, and I want to be sure you have a way to do that because her website is her name, Moira Shepard. So it's M-O-I-R-A, that's her first name, and her last name, it's S-H-E-P-A-R-D. So it's dot com. And you can find out more about what she offers to her clients. She has a wonderful blog, and she has lots of information. And as a matter of fact, I believe that she has a special gift for our listeners. Moira, can I ask you to share what people can find and get for themselves from you?
1: Absolutely. I've put together a, a booklet called Top Four Ways to Build Your Confidence Now, Um, a lot of people have challenges about confidence. um, And, you know, who can can blame us with the mistakes that we've made, with the things that have happened, with the challenges that we face? Life can be one confidence-wrecking experience after another. I totally, totally get that. But you don't have to knuckle under to that. You don't have to let that be your story that I'll never be able to have what I want because I don't have the confidence to go out and get it. I'll never be able to create the life that I want because I don't deserve it. I'll never be able to create the business that I want because I don't know how to do it. Well, I've been in all of those situations and I am here to say you can nevertheless develop confidence. I have uh, accumulated so many techniques and technologies and tools over the years to support people in building their confidence that I've taken my top four and put them into this booklet so that you can stay, you know, as lacking in confidence as you want for, you know, as long as you want. You know, we have free will. I run across a lot of people who say, I would love to be confident tomorrow, but uh, for <laughs> now, I'm, I'm good. Thank you very much. So when the day comes when you decide you want to be confident today, I encourage you to pick up these super easy super simple tools to help you build up confidence within yourself, not through empty rah-rah affirmations or anything like that, but practices based on your personal experiences. So you have authentic proof in your own experience that confidence is justified, it's deserved, and you've accomplished a great deal more than you realize. You're much more than you know. And these tools will help you connect with that in an emotional and mental way.
0: Oh, how wonderful. What a gift. So people go right to your website. I think it's there in your homepage. Am I right about that? that yes, it little... is. There's a
1: little button right at the top of the page. Oh, good. Okay. Say, get your gift. So,
0: so not only is Moira giving us the benefit of her hard-won wisdom, but she's also giving a gift to those of us who are listening. And I invite you to definitely take her up on it and find out more about Moira on her website. And you're also on social media. And uh, I'm going to be sharing that uh, with our show notes that go with this. So people have more than one way to reach you. And what I wanted to ask you, since you are a woman of many media, <laughs> and you, you, you work in the world of speaking with people one-to-one and individually, but also the traditional media, the new media, I'm wondering if you have found that people are able to gain confidence by making the most of social media, because that's usually social media is bashed by a lot of communicators. I, I get why that happens fact, when I grew up a thousand years ago, people were bashing television. Oh, my God, it's going to be the end of us. And before <laughs> that, they were probably bashing radio. And who knows what they were bashing before that. So now it's social media's turn for that. I'm wondering what you've noticed about your use of it and how you found it to be either a help or a hindrance to people in their communications and maybe even their own self-development.
1: One thing I've noticed is that social media seems to have the effect on a great many people of undermining their confidence because people on social media tend to show their best selves. This is me and my shiny life. Here is my beautiful kitchen. Here is my beautiful child. Here's my beautiful home, you know. And so people tend to feel terribly inadequate and less than because of the world that we live in we're so often encouraged to compare ourselves to others, usually in a way that makes us feel less than and inferior to the people we're comparing ourselves to that I, I really encourage people who use social media and find that experience. See, I'll never have the life that she has. I'll never have the business that he has, stuff like that. And just realize behind that shiny exterior is a messy human interior, just like the rest of us. Like like me with my confident act, There's there was always quaking and insecurity inside and just, oh, please don't notice how nervous and terrified I am. Please don't hold me up because I just I don't know what I'm doing there all of us have that inside ourselves to some extent or another and that's because our brains tend to go to self-doubt to regret to victimhood to pulling up all kinds of evidence that yeah why should we trust ourselves look at all the things we've done how could we possibly you know the number that we do on ourselves If I were less inclined to let people take the responsibility for their own lives and their own experiences, I would say that the people on social media who show their shiny best selves without meaning to are bullying other people. But that's really not what is happening. If you're feeling inadequate, if you're feeling less than, if you're feeling like you'll never measure up to the shiny examples before you on social media, that's from you, my dear. It's not from these people who are putting up their best selves because, you know, that's human nature, that's what we do. And none of them are are appropriate people for you to compare yourselves to. It's been said by more than one wise person that no one knows the battles that each one of us has fought. You don't know how far those people have come, what they've had to overcome, what they've had to fight, what they may still be fighting. You don't know. So give them the benefit of the doubt, acknowledge their humanity, and acknowledge your own There are probably people out there who compare themselves to you and find themselves wanting and feel inferior. And again, you're not bullying them intentionally, but we feel bullied. We feel put down, but it's our own heads putting us down. It's not those people with their shininess. It's it's ourselves getting what we think is confirmation of our worthlessness or unworthiness or undeservingness, our inadequacy. So what needs to be healed is inside, not what's on social media.
0: You know, you bring to mind something that I've said for years, and it was before social media became something we allocate hours in our day to. And I remember it was this phrase. I said, I always admire people who do their growing up in public because it can't be easy. And I say that just thinking back even to those previous generations where somebody is taken up as having talent or some special set of skills, and they are acknowledged, they are given prizes, they're given winning trophies, they're given special rewards, and then, oops, something happens, and then they have their fall. And then sometimes there's a tendency to keep them when they're down and say, well, why didn't they know better? How come they weren't more mature? How could they make those mistakes? Why, if I were in the public eye, I would never do that. Well, truth be told, the public eye can be a very bewildering place. And it can throw people even off their best centered self when they're alone or in their private life. Sometimes people don't value their privacy until it's gone because they've become, they've become a public And You said it so well. But it's something I've thought a little bit about, and I find myself wanting to be forgiving of people who stumble and fall in the public eye because they're just doing something that we might do individually, but fewer people are seeing it. So we're given a little bit of room to kind of pick ourselves up and do what we have to do if we are at least willing to reach out for help. So I love what you said earlier in our conversation. When you were experiencing extreme back pain and difficulties, you learned you had to reach out for help. And you would ask people to do things that you thought you should have been able to do yourself. But in that process, maybe learned a little bit more about something that has a fancy word called interdependency. <laughs> yes, interdependence rather than independence. That is the thing hmm The is- Buddhists are very famously tuned into that. It's something that I think we, as a, as a country, as a culture, as a, as a humanity, a species, could learn a lot from because it will give us an opportunity, an opening to reach out for someone who might have a point of view that could get us out of the little pickle we're, we're in at the moment, or this feeling of vulnerability, or this sense of injury that may be very, very real, and we can't see a way beyond it. But with support and help, that might become possible.
1: It's, it's truly sad. We never heal alone. I've seen this in, in, in my own experience. It was healing for my friends to help me. It helped them feel like they could do something when they were feeling so helpless in my complete dependency and lack of mobility. It was healing for my family when I got well. I was, nobody ever said anything, but there was kind of a sense every time I went into a room at a family gathering where people would just kind of heave a sigh of relief and say, oh, thank God, we don't have to worry about Moira anymore. She's okay. Thank God. Thank God. I couldn't have healed without them. I had so many people helping me. It really took a village to get me out of bed. And and I'm grateful for every one of them, all the dear souls who helped me in ways they probably don't even remember or know. And yet every one of them made a difference and helped bring me to where I am today, for which I am so grateful, enjoying great health and work that I love.
0: Oh, my gosh. I could have this conversation with you for hours. Yet I want to leave our listeners with a little experiment for a couple of days or maybe a a little practice I may take on for a week or something that you'd like to suggest that comes to mind that might kind of whisper in their ear. It might wow them a little bit. Is there something you'd like to suggest that our listeners could consider for themselves?
1: Yes. One of my favorite practices is at the end of the night or at the end of the day, just before I go to sleep, I ask to be shown everything I was meant to learn, know and understand from my experiences that day. Help me to understand them from the highest truth and show me how to live those realizations in my daily life. That is my final prayer before I go to sleep every night. Somehow asking what I was meant to learn from the experience helps me to let go of any shame or blame or regret toward myself or anybody else and just realize everything that happens to me because it's meant to teach me something about love.
0: And that is a word that... One could say is even more powerful than wow. And I love that we're ending on that word. What a beautiful thought. And thank you for that gift. I invite all those listening to take this on, see what you discover, see what is revealed. Oh my gosh, I'm sure it will wow you. Thank you, Moira Shepard, for being with us today. It has been an absolute pleasure.
1: Thank you. It's been my honor, Diane. You are a great soul. I'm so glad you're sharing yourself with the world there's so much so, needed.
0: We are having so much fun here so let's 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 go out and have a world that works. So thank you again and I wish everyone a wonderful day, wonderful evening and we will we will see you soon. Well, maybe not see you, but you'll hear us soon. So thanks for being with us. Take care. What a pleasure to be with you in the world of wow whispering. As we complete this episode, I invite you to notice the wows and whispers that enliven or challenge as they fulfill life for you in both tiny moments and transforming experiences. I wish you the very best until we meet next time.